What's up, everything? It's the middle of May, and we haven't played hockey for two months, but the podcast is still going. The AHL has canceled its season. The NHL may have a 24-team plan to resume its season. And the team executives have a bunch of bad CBA proposals. We'll discuss it all. Then we'll raid the mailbag of various public figures, like the FBI raided the Branch Davidian compound for 53 days in 1993. And if you didn't guess it, we'll also discuss Waco at the end of this episode. It's a lot to cover, so let's get started, and let's go Blues! Welcome back, everyone. Welcome to the Two Guys, One Cup podcast. It is Sunday, May 17th. I didn't get the date wrong. I tried, but in the end, I failed to fail. And I am Failing upward. <laughs> and uh, we are here. Well, we're not here together, although that may reconvene soon. But for the time being, we're here apart as God and, you know... Our overlords. <laughs> uh, how are you doing today, Ian? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm not. I'm not wet from the rain today. I don't know if out by you if it's been doing the weird thing where it rains nonstop and then it's sunny again and uh-huh. then rains nonstop again and then sunny again. It's very confusing. Yes, and I suppose that's what they call springtime. But you know, it's very confusing. <laughs> I suppose so. Yeah, or uh, what they call in the South the devil beating his wife. Oh, I have heard that before. I don't like that. Uh, But no, yeah, it's been a weird weather day. And it's been like pouring rain at times and then (laughs) no rain, like you said, and kind of sunny. It's kind of sunny right now. Uh, The other day, I got almost drowned out in the rain. I made the mistake of going outside, which is a mistake in general. (laughs) And uh, I thought to myself I'd reached a lull in my work day, and I knew it was supposed to rain all afternoon. So I was like, I can take a walk right now real quick and get some exercise and get out of the house for a bit. And I made it about a fourth of the way in my normal loop when it started to be pretty, you know, pretty frequent lightning and thunder and i was like oh this is i should probably turn around but i didn't and then by about three-fourths of the way it started pouring rain uh and i was drowned and then like a little bit further on from that it started hailing and i was also covered with sky ice so yeah it was uh it was a shock to the system i made it home all right the clothes you know, eventually dried um i changed i mean i didn't leave them (laughs) on my body to dry um yeah, no, it was a, it was an experience. Speaking of crazy weather, uh, I got to tell you that yesterday I watched Geostorm. Oh, Geostorm, and how was that? Extremely underwhelming, I got to say. Like, I mean, it was it was entertaining in the moment, but when by the time it was finished, I was like, stuff happened, and a lot of effort went into showing me the stuff that happened, but a lot of it just. It just kind of happened, and then they stopped showing me, if that makes sense. There'd mm-hmm. be a giant weather event, and I'm like, here comes the wave. It's going to hit the city. It hit the city. And then it never went back to the city. And I was like, okay. just didn't so, feel the weight. I didn't so feel the weight of a storm. Were you disappointed that it wasn't more fun or that it wasn't more terrible? Um, I was disappointed that it wasn't more fun. It was kind of like 
it's kind of actually a little on the boring side, like just in the sense that they were trying to set up like a mystery of who done it, and it was like mm-hmm. it's the person you thought we didn't. You know, <laughs> we tried. We tried to even do the oh, it's not who you thought it was, but it was like I thought it was that person from the get go. So yeah, uh, but yeah, it was very, it's very interesting. It was just like. I think I liked it. Have you ever seen 2012, like the disaster movie? Uh, I have not. But I, I think I liked that better. Yeah. That's a that's a stiff take, but I'm in favor. Actually, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here for Geostorm 2. <laughs> that's good to know. Uh, I, I What have I watched lately? I've started watching uh, What We Do in the Shadows, thanks to Gift Jeff, his recommendation. That's fantastic. Haven't seen the movie. Uh, we, you and I should watch the movie sometime and mm-hmm. discuss that. Uh, but that's been a good find. Um, Scrubs podcast is still bomb. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Been a been a normal normal quarantine time <laughs> for me the last week. I have been watching rewatching Seinfeld, and I gotta say it holds up. That show's real freaking good. It's <laughs> yeah, pretty funny. All the people were right. That guy's real funny. So, uh, yeah, it was. It's been a. It's been a normal week. I don't know. It's it's mm-hmm. quarantine life. People are starting to leave again, which I'm fine with. But it's still like slow and weird and strange. So yeah, it's almost like once your life kind of gets back to normal, that's fine. But there's still, like we, like we'll talk about, there's still sports and all these other, you know, large events that are still going to be off in the distance for a time to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of weird stuff will still be like, you know, going on. Uh, so yeah, why don't we talk about that? Uh, I guess we can start with the NHL has maybe moved towards a 24 team plan, according to Pierre LeBrun of the Athletic. He had a short article today updating this, which I may read uh, in its entirety because it's pretty brief. Uh, But he says, could this be the week we have tangible NHL announcements? The NHL and NHLPA return to play committee talked throughout the weekend, sources said Sunday, with more talks expected over the next day or two. While there remains work to be done and nobody involved is ready to say 100% where this is headed, sources confirmed progress was made this weekend on a 24-team format for return to play. I'm told the proposed format doesn't go straight to the playoffs but involves games in some form beforehand. That would be something the players pushed for. Again, let me stress that both sides on the committee as of Sunday morning still have work to do on the format so it may change yet again. But there's a clear sense that both sides are closer on what a season resumption may look like. Once the return to play committee finally agrees to a format assuming it eventually does the nhlpa's executive board 31 player reps would need to vote on it for approval let's be clear that not every player in the nhl is that interested in playing again this season there are serious health and safety concerns but the anecdotal evidence seems to suggest more nhl players than not on those 24 teams want to play again there are financial considerations obviously underlying all of this the NHL, meanwhile, has a 3 p.m. Eastern Board of, Exec- Board of Governors call scheduled for Monday, which is a regularly scheduled call the league has every two weeks since the season was put on pause. Whether or not Commissioner Gary Bettman will have a tentative return to play format to share with governors by that time of the call remains to be seen. There may be further work to do, unless the next 24 hours produces a finished product. Uh, then he goes on to talk about Bill Daly, saying there would be uh, likely be a decision on the upcoming draft this week, uh, that he thinks that'll be discussed on 
the during the call on Monday. Uh, he says, more and more, it appears that the June draft idea met too much opposition and may not happen <laughs> after all. Though wow. again... Let me stress that really comes down to what Bettman wants to do. The draft does not require an official Board of Governors vote, even though Bettman and Daly have sought feedback from individual owners. If Bettman still wants the June draft, if he truly feels it's the right thing for the league, it's his call in the end. The NHL and NHLPA also have to nail down a timeline for Phase 2 when the self-isolation of players' teams is lifted and players can start using NHL team facilities in small groups to skate again. That involves getting players back from all over the world, which means self-quarantine of those players traveling from abroad once they arrive in their respective NHL markets. I get a migraine just thinking about all the layers to that process. In the meantime, busy times at the NHLPA as the executive board was voting all weekend long on whether to further defer the players' last paycheck, which dates back to April 15th. You may remember they first voted to defer a decision to May 15th. This is all about trying to make the best decision regarding escrow and what the players are going to owe. Should they take some of their medicine now by not collecting their last paycheck and start paying down some money owed in a season where revenues have not been have been affected no matter if there's hockey again or not? Or should they take all their salary now for this season and figure out the rest later? No easy answer, honestly. Either way, things are lining up for some NHL news this week. And because I read that virtually entirely on air, I will give it a green smiley face because I assume that gives uh, Pierre <laughs> Lebrun more of my money or something. I believe a sweet treat falls out of a little container. <laughs> <laughs> a little dispenser on his desk. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, so how do you feel about Anything I just read, the draft probably not happening in June, uh, the players' escrow payments, if you want to touch on that, and or, uh, most importantly, the potential 24-team format. Uh, first, we'll start with escrow. Let's say that the players will get more of the escrow if they if we actually resume like parts of the regular season, finish the regular season. Well, I mean, in theory, the more revenue the league makes, the less of an escrow hit the players mm-hmm. would take. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, resuming would be critical to making that possible, but it's still going to be nowhere near what the mm-hmm. projected. So, yeah, and like we said, a lot of their a lot of their revenue comes from butts and seats and ticket mm-hmm. sales and everything. And so, just having the TV deal is it's good, but it's not going to get them like even half of what they would hope to. Because I'm sure it's I'm sure they get more than half of the revenue from having people yeah. attend games. And for anyone that doesn't know the escrow situation it's complicated so i may not get this exactly right but the bare bones outline of it is that i think the players are not entitled as collectively to share more than 50 percent of the league's total revenue on a season so if player salaries in total combine to be more than 50 percent of the league's revenue then they Mm -hmm. as a collective have to pay back in escrow whatever amount gets the leagues and the owners to the players and the owners to 50 percent now i don't think that works the other way i don't think if the owners naturally get 53% 53% of the revenue, they have to pay, pay 3% more to the players. Um, but, um, yeah. I, mean, yeah like, I guess that would make sense because you have like a set in stones for a contract. They're not going to pay you an excess of your mm-hmm. contract unless you have whatever signing bonuses and all this other stuff that's already like accounted for and taken care of. Yeah, but I mean, I think the way player salaries are right now, it's it's been pretty rare that they don't have at least some escrow hit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but the, the potential this year is that it could be gargantuan just because 
their salaries don't change, but obviously the revenue has taken a massive hit. Uh, so, you know, I mean, that could be part of CBA negotiations, talking about lessening that or spreading it out over time or figuring out a way to not make that just kind of a holocaust on the players' salaries. And I know that, you know, you're tempted to talk about, well, these guys are making, you know, $12 million a year. They can afford to pay some back to the league. Not that any of our listeners would be on the league owner's side, of course. But, I mean, the reality is that that vastly affects guys on entry-level contracts. And, you know, and again, $900,000 is a healthy chunk of change for an annual salary, but it's not if, you know, you're trying to live an NHL life with your teammates and travel and do all of that and then you're suddenly told oh and half of your salary goes back to the league now i think some of the more you know veteran players try to defray some of those costs for the guys on entry levels and stuff like that but there's only so much you can do especially if the hit's going to be as bad as it would be this year yeah like that's just it was already for me at least when talking about um escrow like a nightmare and then just the amount that they're going to have to talk about it now with resumption of the season and everything. It's just like, Oh no, just skip past this. Part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm with but you there. I, I know that Harry lives underneath the steps. I don't know why he lives underneath the steps. I would assume they had another room in the house room, but they don't. So he lives under there and we just got to get past this part to get to the fun yeah, parts. Of the just book. take me to Hagrid, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. She did, you know, what? I'll give JK Rowling credit. She did a great job of making me hate, the Dursleys as much as uh or like being in that home as much uh-huh. as Harry did because it was just boring as shit. Yeah, it was a good point. I think that's like, only, get me the hell out of here. I think that's only like two or three chapters too that he's at, you know, the house. But Oh yeah. As a child it was like feels like a book. lifetime. I was like, No. You're like a new Harry Potter book, hooray. And they're like, you know, it was raining at the Dursleys that day. Like, ah shit. <laughs> she got me. <laughs> She'd done it again. Um, sorry, go ahead. I was just say with the 24 team thing, that's like, I guess that, you know, not, I, I have no say I have to roll over and concede and just be like, all right, I guess here we go with this 24 team bullshit. But like, I'm assuming that that gives the top two teams in each division or something like that, or top four teams in the conference, like a buy, because then you'd get the, you'd have eight teams total with a buy and then you'd have your 16 teams and they would play it out to get the remaining eight teams or I don't even know. Yeah. I, I read something around Robbins today and I was like, I, wait, vey. I feel like they're, I feel like they're starting from a place that's sort of, they're starting from a place that's not fair mm-hmm. or they're saying it's not fair. We need to include these teams that were on the bubble. If it wasn't fair. So we're going to make this fair. And then I feel like they're like overcorrecting. Like now we need to like make it super fair and do all these weird round robins and yada yada. And I'm like, it's not going to be perfect. I think you guys should just do your play in round. And then that's, and then you just start the playoffs again. You know, mm-hmm. there's this extra little tiny round beforehand. Yeah. I've just been seeing so many other weird proposals. And I'm just like, I think you're overcomplicating it. I just don't understand too. And I know we've talked about this several times, but I just like, how do you safeguard it so that it's basic, you know, even if they're having a mini like preseason or whatever, like he kind of hinted at in there, I don't know how you make it. So once whatever you're calling the playoffs starts, it's not like unfair for the teams that are um, 
starting from neutral, like the better teams that don't have play-in rounds Mm -hmm. are going to basically be starting in neutral whenever the other teams are winning their first round, round robin, whatever it is, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I just wonder if, you know, I'm, I'm really curious how you do that in a way that's not kind of screwing people over in the better teams. And I, I'd almost be more interested in a system where it was more like an international hockey tournament, which I don't think they'd ever do anything this creative, but it was more of a system where like maybe each conference is a group and maybe the, the top seeded teams get like a points advantage, you know, but then from there they still play the kind of group seeding system where it's like, <clears throat> excuse me. Okay. The blues play the Blackhawks and then, they play the Stars, and then they play the Avs, and then they play the Predators, and each team also plays all the other teams, and you get, you know, three points for a win, one point for a tie, whatever, and then that's how you determine who the next round is, like they do at the World Junior Championship or the Olympics, because um, mm-hmm. then at least everybody's getting the same kind of runway to sort of take off into the real tournament. And then from yeah. there, you know, whether you do 16 teams out of that or whether you want to do eight like from there you can do the more traditional seven game series um i don't i'm i've not i have no reason to believe they'd actually do it that way but uh, to me that's kind of interesting only because well it's fun it would be fun to see it done that way since we never have but i just think i i am from the philosophy and i know a lot of people disagree with this that like momentum is not quite everything, but pretty much everything in the playoffs. I mean, that at least is real, unlike what yeah. Bill Primville once said. And it has a huge impact. And so, like, I don't understand if, you know, even if it's only a game or two, like, if you're the Blues and let's say the Preds and the Blackhawks face off in the round robin or whatever, and you're going to mm-hmm. face the winner of that, and the Preds. It's a three-game series. They lose the first one, and then they win the second two and win the third one in overtime, and then you are flat-footed as they come to you two days later. I just don't understand how that's very fair to the Blues, even if the logic says, well, the Blues should be the much better team, you know? It's mm-hmm. just it's just my own paranoia. And honestly, like, I don't care that much. I mean, you know, like, if the Blues got bounced in the first round, if they won the Stanley Cup, I wouldn't be that upset either way because I'd be really excited to see hockey happening on the one hand, and on the other hand, there'd still be a part of me that would be like, this is all fake and kind of an asterisk Stanley Cup anyway, even if the Blues won it, which I know that some markets would not feel that way if their team won it and would feel that way if every other team won it. I feel like I'd feel that way either way because I'm just better than Toronto fans <laughs> but I don't know I don't how do you feel about any of that because I feel like I rambled for a while uh I mean that's what I mean I think I'd rather have these teams that they were wanting advice to have some sort of action mm-hmm. and like I said it it did sound like somewhere and um it was like LeBron and Burnside on the athletic had like a collaboration on like what exactly a resumption to the season would look like They've had these sort of articles over and over again, but I think as we get closer to it, they're just trying to really pin down what it would look like with the most current, you know, news that we get. Mm. And so it did kind of look like they were saying something about having six teams, um, you know, six from each conference or six from each division, excuse me, like being one of these four hub cities. And then before the playoffs even started, they would play like 
um, like sort of a round robin thing where the Blues would play the the Avalanche, the Stars, the Predators, the Jets, and the Blackhawks each like once. Mm. So they'd play like five games, and then they would take those five games and combine it with the standings prior to that to figure out like seeding for the like for this playoff, the playoff rounds. And I was like, I don't. That's the part that was okay, starting to sound like, too confusing. If you're like the fifth and sixth team in that, then are you bounced before the playoffs actually start? I, I don't think so. I think it was like you just somehow it was like in these six teams you're playing and then you whittled it down to 12 somehow and then you had buys. Okay. That one but then I was like, interesting. I guess you'd have your have at least have some action before your buy happens, uh-huh. you know, but it was like, eh. I don't know. This, that's the part where I was like, this is getting complicated. This feels like the. This feels like that if I was in charge, like, ah, fuck it. We're just doing the 16 teams on point percentage. See ya. Yeah, no, it's just, it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to figure I think, that out. Yeah, I think the only reason they're jumping through all these hoops um, to do the playoffs in all these different ways is just because, or include as many teams as possible, I should say, is they'll say it's more for like, oh, we just want to be fair to these teams because it was so close, you know, and, you know, who's to say if they were going to be in or out of the playoffs. I don't think that's as true as it is oh, no, that, that they need the money. And New York TV revenue, for sure. Yeah, Which, they, just, they like, just need the viewership. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that that I'm upset with them for that. You know, that makes yeah, sense. Uh, just, I was like, yeah, I get it. Like, you, you need the money, and um, everyone needs the money at this point. So it's like, I understand it. But, yeah, whenever they try and sort of use, like, you know, we just want to be fair. I'm like, well, if you just want to be fair, just – just tell us to our face that you just, you just need the money. Mm-hmm. Another way I could see you doing it, which might not work at all, but it would be interesting, would be to kind of invert the first two rounds. So it's like the, the top four seeds in each conference play the first round as like a seven-game series, while the bottom eight are kind of doing a series of two three-game series to whittle from eight down to four. Oh yeah, to, I guess eight yeah, like two, two short series while the other the, the other better teams are doing mm-hmm. one long series. And then in th- I mean the complaint there would be well some good teams going to get eliminated, you know if the, if the Blues have to play the um, the who's the best team in the West? There is no good team in the West. The Knights, <laughs> I guess Knights. If the, one of those teams has to lose in the first round. And then, but the inverse is if they won the first round, they theoretically have a lot easier second round opponent. So I don't know. I mean, I'm glad those aren't my decisions to make, but mm-hmm. I do think it's important to make them well because you just, you don't want it to be a sham process. Like if you're going to, you know, and, and I don't think they're taking an outsized health risk because if they were, I don't think they'd be doing it. But if you're going to take whatever risk you're going to take to try and make this work, you need to make a process that is fair and equitable as possible. And, and obviously it's going to be abnormal in the sense that, you know, the whole season and the whole atmosphere of the world right now is abnormal. But, um, you know, you, you still need to, if you're, especially if you're awarding the Stanley Cup, you just have to make it as fair and and balanced a process as possible. And I think, you know, you really do need to give priority to giving the teams that were already very clearly in a playoff space an equal opportunity or arguably a better opportunity, you know, to get through mm-hmm. and advance into the second and third round and have, you know, I mean, it, it should it should be very hard for the Blackhawks to 
reach the Stanley Cup final this year. Even more hard than just it would be by having their shitty roster. Like it should be it should be difficult. It should be more difficult even if you are playing like let's you know, you're playing a video game where you can make this two teams equal. It should be harder for them to do it than for the Blues to do it. Just from a stop, you know, because I just think that's important to make it you know, you want yeah. you want you to make the regular the season mean something. Yeah, you want to include the teams, and I get that both from an economic standpoint and from a hey, no one expected this, and you were still in a playoff hunt, even if you probably weren't going to make it. But you've got to be realistic and say you actually probably weren't going to make it, so I'm not <laughs> just going to hand you a playoff ticket that you don't really deserve. You know, so. I don't know. Okay, that's easy for realists. Yeah, it's easy for us to say at the top of the league, of course, but um, I do think it's important. Uh, we're other, just tops. sorry, what? Did, we're just tops. Oh, there we go. Yeah, I agree, uh, and that's a nice place to be. I know you made the comment the other day. This is going to take us off course, but who cares? Because there really is no course. You made <laughs> some comment the other day about how uh, how weird it was to see. Um, the blues like look back at the blues of the Bacchus era and think mm. about how like you we we all you and me included thought those were really good teams like top contenders in the league like great great teams and now that i look back at it i'm like no <laughs> like i mean it was a good team it was a consistently good team that was very well coached mm. but like i don't think that team was great that team's goalie was brian elliott for five years and i love brian elliott and as we talk about regularly his numbers here were insane yeah. but he was still brian elliott and yeah, it's like was he really gonna be your cut your cup goalie yeah. no and i look at like you know you see Bacchus, you know he was a solid player here steam was solid oshi was solid but like none of those guys were ever really stars they were stars to us Mm-hmm. But they were never stars in the league. Uh, Oshi more than anybody, but just because of the, of the you know the Sochi thing and just being gorgeous and everything. But like even he still is like more of a star now that he's in Washington, and even still he's not really a top tier star. I do remember too, like when Ryan O'Reilly got here. I don't know if you had this experience, but I certainly did have the experience of like, oh, this is what a great hockey player looks like. You know, like I, I, just, I would watch him in his early games last season, and even though the team was shitty, he would just like always do something every game that would make me be like, huh, I didn't know hockey players could do that. And it's not like, you know, I'm not saying Ryan O'Reilly is Sidney Crosby or uh, Connor McDavid, but I just think night after night in terms of consistency and skill level, he's probably the best player I've really watched, you know, because I, you know, I have watched some of the 90s Blues, but I didn't really, you know, pick it up and start to understand it until more high school and college days, which were, you know, late 2000s. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's interesting to think about, like, those teams, that era is kind of our, you and I, more more so me, because you were into it before, but like kind of our formative era as Blues fans, and like it will always kind of had that golden hue to us, I think, mm-hmm. because of that. But like in hindsight, our team as a whole is just so much better now, and it's weird to now. I feel like we are actually 
a top team in the league and actually constant contenders. And obviously all of this is somewhat colored by the fact that we won a Stanley Cup last year. And if that Jamie Ben goal had gone in and we'd been bounced in the second round, maybe I wouldn't feel that way. But it does. It just feels so different to me. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's it's crazy to look at those old teams. The game I was watching in particular was Tarasenko. It was like the first game of the 2013 season. So mm-hmm. right after that, like half season lockout, the Red uh, Wings game. Yeah, yeah, the six nothing Red Wings game where the Blues yeah beat them six nothing, and it was uh, Tarasenko scored two goals in that game, his first and second ever, and like he scored the first one of the entire game, and it was nuts. But yeah, it's one of those things where I think. I'm going to have to guess like Jake Allen was part of the blues organization, but he wasn't on the team. Mm. And so I think it was like Steen, Trangelo, Tarasenko and Schwartz are like the four players that are still on this team currently. Mm-hmm. And everyone else is completely gone. That's just crazy. It's yeah, it's nuts. Like it's, there's kind of like um, in the last decade, and I guess it makes sense to talk about it. Decade was, for us especially is like there were like kind of four iterations of this team i feel like there was the we just got bounced by the vancouver canucks and we thought we were a good team and now we're actually realizing we're not a very good team like early quarter mm-hmm. and then ken hitchcock took over and then it was like the rising of the blues from like about 2012 into like 2015 mm-hmm. and then it was the kind of like back end of ken hitchcock era where it's like ooh, i think most people are starting to think this is not going to work with him <laughs> or even some of these players like Oshi and Bacchus and those guys. And we sort of swung into what was Mike Yo's years and, and getting Shen and having sort of like a little more promise, but still kind of floundering. And then we got into, I don't know if it's really a quarter, but you know, this last little bit here with the, the cup win and Berube and Bennington and all these guys. But yeah, it's weird to watch the, what would have been, I think these, beginning of the second quarter and like the blues ascending, mm-hmm. but still having some of these, some of these players that are, I mean, I mean this in a nice way, but are like just dead weight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like just to be looking around and being like, Oh, Chris Stewart's still on this team. And they were talking about how he lost his like 20 pounds because, you know, he stopped eating like gluten, you know, and he was like way faster now. And so I remember thinking, Oh yeah, Chris Stewart's going to be, you know, much more of a factor in the long haul now, instead of just kind of a flash in the pan player. Mm-hmm. And that was not the case, but uh, <laughs> it was just like, or I told you like these scratches for that 2013 game were like Jeff Boy Whitka, Jamie Langenbrenner and uh, Matt D'Agostini. And I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> like what is happening on this team? And it wasn't even, it wasn't even Elliot and Nettit for that game. It was Halak and it was just all these different things like, Holy moly. And, they, we still had Andy McDonald on the team, and it just felt like this weird mis- mishmash of players. Where, yeah, in retrospect, I'm like, why did why was this going to work? Why did we think this was going to work? And we were fun though. We were like a fun team. There weren't that many expectations yet because we had just made it to what the second round the year before and got run over by the Kings. And so it was like, okay, like that sucks. But it was the first time we were in the playoffs in like three years. And we got out of the first round, which, you know, three years prior, we'd been swept in the first round. So it was like, you're just kind of having fun. Um, And I think now when you start to get a taste of what, like, you know, real great teams are, it's almost like looking back on those times, you're like, yeah, it was fun. But did I really think we were going to go anywhere? Mm -hmm. I was like, I guess I did. I just didn't know. I didn't know what good was. It's like you're saying with with, um, O'Reilly. It's like you just didn't really know. 
if that existed or what it looked like on your team on a night in and night out basis. Cause you see Sidney Crosby, you see these players, but you really only, even as hockey fans, we only really see them on highlights and we see them when they play our team. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you don't really get to see one of these players like night in and night out. And it's just like Ryan O'Reilly, most certainly like it's hard. It's one of those things where it's hard to say, where it's like, is he an elite center? It's like, I think he's like elite, elite B tier. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Where it's like just right underneath like the top centers. And, but that's still way better than anything we even had, you know, a year or two ago. Well, and there are elements of what O'Reilly does that no one else can really do in terms of like stick control. Mm-hmm. And I mean, faceoffs, obviously, but just the, the, um, if a guy like Connor McDavid had, uh, Ryan O'Reilly's stick skills, he'd be an unstoppable god. You know, like <laughs> that's a good point. O'Reilly's elite in areas that, like, if you're just like a casual fan, or I mean, even just mm-hmm. us or whatever, you're just not someone that's really looking at him playing. You wouldn't really notice, like you said, yeah, faceoffs, uh, stick control, and things like that. You're like, yeah, he's a pretty good player, and you're like, why is it? And it's like, oh, you just have to like really watch him play, and then yeah. you'll start to see what the difference is. Well, and he's great at stuff that like can be trained because he's maniacal about training. You know, mm-hmm. he doesn't have the physical gifting of some of those other guys, which is kind of borne out by the fact that he was a a middle second round pick. But his commitment and his drive is off the charts, which is kind of borne out by the fact that even as a middle second round pick, he debuted that following season. So mm-hmm. like he's just he's kind of a coach's dream in the sense that he does everything and he works so hard. And if you watch any of his social media content and see the insane drills he he and his dad think of, like it's it's really nuts. It's just kind of like if he, you know, and he's he's a perfectly great athlete. I don't mean to impugn him at all, but like if he had any of like McDavid's skill or like somebody else's shot, you know, Tarasenko's shot, he'd be like a god. But mm-hmm. in terms of things he can teach himself and control, he uh, was just yeah, he's just pretty much flawless. So Ian, you danced around it. Mm-hmm. Um, can you name the 20 players that took the ice? I guess the 19 players that technically that took the ice the night of December, what was it, 19th, 2013? January 19th, sorry. I was like, yeah, I was like, I remember because it was like after Christmas and I was like, hooray, something to look forward to in the doldrums <laughs> that are January and February. Um, let's see. So you'd have Oshie and Bacchus and Steen. Correct. And Perron and Berglund. Correct. And Tarasenko and Schwartz. Good stuff. Almost, it's almost a full line. McDonald. Uh-huh. Um, was Reeves? He was. On the lineup? Okay. Oh, boy. This is where, like, it's like... You've talked Scott, about one was, of these guys already. What's that? Talked about at least one of the remaining guys uh, already. Um, was Scott Nickel on this team he too? He was. That's the one I yeah. thought we'd never get. Good job. I remember because he was like, what the hell? <laughs> um, oh, and Chris Stewart. Yep. Then on defense, it must have been Petrangelo. Was Shaq. that one of his times that was like the 13-game trial and then he went back? Or was this his first full season? Uh, no, I think he played a full season in, in okay. 11, 12. Okay. I think, um, You're probably right. That makes sense. the two previous years were the, were the trial ones, I believe. So Petrangelo, Shattenkirk, uh, boy, 
This is Bowmeister. We got Bowmeister already. We did. Um, Polak. Yeah. So no Gunnarsson. <laughs> There's like all these like okay. So no. <laughs> um, oh, Ian Cole. Yeah. Is that five? That's only five. No, right? we didn't have Bowmeister yet. Oh, we didn't. No, that, he was, I thought we had him in 2012. No, I think he was after. I think he was at that trade deadline, wasn't he? Okay. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um. No, we had Bowmeister, didn't we? Wait. Well, he wasn't on the ice for this game. I'm pretty sure. I know. Oh, really? Okay. So. I swear we had him because I thought we got him the same year that we got. Jordan Leopold. We definitely did, but I thought that was after. I thought that was this season, the 2012-13 season. I thought we got him in 12 because I remember being up in Minnesota at the time. But although I was, was I in Minnesota in 2013? Um, I was. I was in Kirksville. I know that. Traded on April 1st, 2013. Damn. Okay. So we don't have Leopold or Bowmeister. Oh no. So Polak, Cole, Petrangelo, Shattenkirk. Oh, we have Barrett Jackman. There we go. And we have Chris Russell. There, you got it. Ew. And the goalies you can e easily name. Oh, yeah, Halak and Elliot. You want to take a stab at the last forward? The last forward. Oh, is this like a... Who was that? Did I, get, I didn't have 12 forwards? No, nope, you had 11. Damn. Steve McDonald... Nickel. Yeah, Berglund, McDonald, Nickel, Oshie, Perron, Reeves, Schwartz, Steen, and Stewart, and Tarasenko. Okay. For a second, I thought you were going to say Tarasenko. I was like, I swear. <laughs> um, oh, boy. Is this like, this like a grinder? Yeah, but not like a totally forgettable one. Yeah, but that but that, that could be any of these three people. Grinder, <laughs> grinder may be a bit rude. I mean, but he certainly was, he was tenacious. Oh, Saboka. <laughs> I was trying to avoid saying the word gumption because I knew oh, that yeah. would give it away in our I was like, I'm sitting there and I'm like, I would, I'm sitting there and I'm like, Stephen, I would describe Chris Porter as a grinder. Let's be honest. <laughs> like, let's, not be, let's not try and give him too many props. Yeah, yeah. No, I, Crack no Porter, I definitely would have. Described as a grinder for sure. Okay, man, I like what a. I'm I'm glad I put Saboka. I think on my all decade team because like what a. I just forget about him all the time, mm -hmm. especially because his like last small stint here was like completely unforgettable or like forgettable. Mm -hmm. And so like I forget that for the whatever four or five seasons we had him before that he was like amazing. Is he still in Buffalo this year? He is. This I think so. Wow. He said some injuries up there though, because I think he's been in and out of the lineup a lot, and I think that's I think that's why. I mean, <laughs> I know they stick up there, but I still think you should probably ice smoke over whatever else you got. Yeah, could be a whole host of reasons out there, but uh, it's funny to think. That that, funny. I was gonna say it's funny to think that um, now people like there was a whole little debate this week because uh, this was like the anniversary of a lot of the Sharks series games from last year, mm -hmm. and. There people posting like you know little gifts about the hand pass and stuff which we'll talk about later but there were like sharks fans in there talking about man the blues are just you know dirty team and cheated all they did was hit and stuff and like you know no skill team and then 
refs handed them the victories and all this stuff. And all, all I could think was like other than ridiculous is like watching this old team that the Blues used to have. I was like, oh no, no. The Blues had like have so much more skill now than they ever had. Yeah, and that sure. old team would have been a team that went in the playoffs and goes, look, all we can do is hit people and just hope the puck goes in. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, 100%. The audacity of that claim for many Sharks fans, but we will discuss that in a little bit. Uh, you have any thoughts on the AHL officially canceling their season, meaning that the partnership <coughs> between the St. Louis Blues and San Antonio Rampage is no more? Yeah, that was kind of sad. I didn't think about that until I saw some um, AHL players for the Blues or some yeah Rampage players sort of posting things on Twitter about, you know, always enjoying their time in San Antonio and how much they'll miss it there and stuff. And I was like, oh, aren't you just going back next year? And I'm like, oh, that's right. Oops. So, yeah, it's, it's a little bittersweet for them. But it is interesting from an NHL perspective because I wonder if when the NHL returns, they'll be allowed to have like an expanded roster already to start just to get some of these guys, you know, ice time and playing time and get the uh, NHL teams have like an extended look at these players. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see. But, yeah, I, I mean, it makes sense. Like if, if you think – you think the NHL depends on people in seats for their revenue, uh, then the AHL is like completely that. And no one is there. And even if they resumed, no one would be there. So they would be making like zero dollars if they were to resume, you know, with an empty arena more or less. So it's it makes sense. I'm honestly surprised it didn't happen earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it does for sure. And now they get to play in Springfield, Massachusetts, which is a nice New England town in the dead of winter. So that should be a fun little. <laughs> should be great. Yeah, from San Antonio to there. I'm going to really miss all the Chimuleos uniforms. And oh, all. yeah. God. And they're not even going to be in San Antonio anymore, are they? Um, Aren't they? No, you're right. They're too? moving them entirely. You're correct. Yeah. Ugh. That's a shame. I don't like that. Yeah. Hopefully Springfield's got some cool traditions we don't even know about. So, <laughs> um, Maybe. We'll find out. You know, Massachusetts folks are well known for their, you know, senses of humor and their outgoing personalities. So, yeah. Um, you know, not being tight or emotionally distant at all, so... It should work out great. Uh, I saw an article on The Athletic I thought was interesting uh, that we can talk about for a few minutes, which was Craig Custance and Thomas Drance teaming up on seven CBA changes NHL team's executives have discussed and players will resist, dated May 14th, 2020. (laughs) Number five will surprise you. That is such that so does belong there. I uh, found this interesting partially because largely these suggestions are just things that the GMs could currently fix themselves if they had either kind of a, a collective sort of, you know, hey, we really need to fix this, so let's not screw each other sort of thing, or just we're, in general, better at negotiating contracts and things. <laughs> the problem is that 20 of the 31 NHL GMs are completely incompetent, uh, and the rest of the 11 have big, random you know, losses of brain processing power. <laughs> so you can't count on that. So, But the seven things were, and we can discuss these, uh, signing bonus limits with the idea being that it would limit the disparity between good and bad clubs and maybe even more importantly, it would help enable buyouts because you're only allowed to buy out 
actual salary and so or the in terms of the cap hit that you're mitigating you're only mm-hmm. buying out against the actual salary that you're paying the player so if it if you make eight million dollars but it's six million in signing bonus which is i think true of the david clarkson contract um you're essentially just only making a percentage back of the two million and that doesn't do anybody in their favors um Players aren't going to go for this ever because they want their money up front. They want lockout protection, all of that sort of stuff. Um, you know, I think that's sort of a thing where if the league in general earned more trust from its players, which it certainly has not thus far, then you might be able to get a little more agreement on that. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, which especially with escrow, it would probably be better in some ways to have more salary and less signing bonus because then you can kind of, you're not going to have to get this lump sum that you have to hang on to and potentially pay back a big chunk of and all that. But um, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I don't think it's going to happen, but it's interesting. What do you think about that? Yeah, I don't, like you said, I just don't see how the players will go for it, but it does make more sense. It feels like it gives teams more flexibility and I feel like, if anything, they should limit it a little bit. Start to start to limit it more than it already is, um, and with the hopes of sort of like pushing it out more and more. I guess with each additional CBA or to see how it goes, because it does feel like something that um, had been out of control in the past. And even though I think they put more limits on it in the last CBA, it feels like they're there's still not enough. Like you know, we tried it, and it's like there still needs to be more. Yeah, yeah. It's just, and it's just another thing where it's like. GMs could just do it themselves and fix it. Yeah, that's true. You can be like, I'm not give you a sign bonus. Well, I'm leaving. It's like, well, that's good. You probably don't need to pay Matt Shane. Yeah, well, there you go. Perfect example. Item number two, flattening the curve of salaries. <laughs> uh, front-loaded deals are bad for owners, and they claim they're bad for players, too, because it affects the escrow, uh, because if you um, you know are getting paid tons in a certain year, uh, you're mm-hmm. taking more from the salary and, um, you know, taking more from the overall revenue and you'd have to pay back more too. Uh, this one, I, I could see, you know, it's, it's kind of along the same lines in terms of like the players want money up front because they mm-hmm. don't trust the league to not screw them out every four or five years and cancel an entire season because of the lockout or because of a lockout. Uh, so, but I could see this being a little more possible be, just because of, you know, I, I don't know that the front loaded contract is really ideal for the players. You want some money when you sign just because of the thrill of it all, but I don't know that you really want all of your money up front. And then, you know, as you age, you're paying for pennies on the dollar. Um, you're playing for pennies on the dollar, excuse me, but like, I just don't think it's likely with the current state of trust between the two sides. Mm-hmm. That's like, it's, it's one of those things again, I mean, almost more than signing bonuses. It seemed like that's what they were trying to do with the last UBA. It was like, get rid of these front loaded deals. Some of which were like, would have been illegal now if they were to be signed now. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I don't know. It seems like yeah, I'm, I'm for it in the sense that like for me, fans perspective too it makes things a little more easy to understand yeah because it is kind of hard to have the conversation casually with somebody about how the fact like that actually uh you don't owe this guy or you only owe this guy this much money even though his 
his um, cap had is this much money, and that's because you already paid him $4 million, $5 million over his cap hit in the last two years prior to that. And then the fact that, you know, Arizona or the Carolina Hurricanes at one point or another were teams that could just eat up cap, you know, cap space because they need to fill that cap space. And it didn't matter. Those 4.5 because now they're only getting paid one. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm convoluting it a little. I'm not really necessarily asking for everyone to be, everyone to be have their actual salary equal to their cap hit, but it just seems like it's always crazy when they go all over the place, especially for, um, like lockout protection too, you'll see that a lot. Like in the lockout protected year, they're like making more money than they would be in some other year because it's like we just want want that guaranteed money. Yeah, yeah, which is understandable. But yeah. I do see some of these. I'm more I'm more on the owner's side of, and at least in the sense that like, yeah, this would be ideal. Like this would be better for probably the game as a whole, even mm-hmm. if it screws the players a little bit. Um, the next one, which is impossible and it will never happen, is contract term limits. Um, I mean, they already had the hill to die on. They called it their hill to die on in the 2012 negotiations, which I guess is how we got from the, the Kovalchuk nonsense to um, the eight-year, seven-year system we have now. But apparently some GMs want to push for a seven-year, five-year system so that teams could re-sign players on seven-year contracts and... Uh, only you know free agents could only sign to five years this isn't going to happen uh because the players don't want it because they don't want less guaranteed money over a shorter amount of time you know you take a you you pull a robbie fabry after you know a year a five-year deal or after an eight-year deal and you blow out your knee, like you can see the obvious difference there, even if I didn't articulate mm-hmm. it very well. Uh, the, you know, the the logic on the other side would say, well, you're still going to get paid. It's just going to be over a shorter time. Uh, and really, I mean, I think there are some players whom this would benefit considerably, the Connor McDavid's and, and you know, um, some of those kinds of players. Nathan McKinnon would benefit from it tremendously right now. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I just don't think it's it's at all likely to happen. To get, Especially, you know, they would be lucky to get seven and six, but to push for seven and five just seems like a, you know, a pretty big steep drop to me. Yeah, and from a fan perspective too, it's like it's I mean, it's just kinda of hit or miss. It's like for some players for some players, sure, I'd like it to be, you know, five year for free agents because it just means all right, I don't have to have this guy for a mistake of seven years or something like Louis Erickson or one of those one of those like contracts. It's like that was that was uh four years too many. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the same time, if you have a really good player and you want to hold on to him, say um, you know, Robert Thomas or whatever, granted he's getting seven years in this scenario rather than eight but i mean it makes the world a difference even as a fan to have someone signed for that long mm-hmm. uh, and again even as a free agent if you're lucky enough to be the team like the Toronto Maple Leafs to get uh john tavares to be able to be like oh now we have him locked up for seven years versus five it makes all the difference in the world yeah i completely agree uh, the next one is the one that I'm I'm kind of most torn on only because I'd be completely in favor of it, but it's also the stupidest in uh, that it's limiting no trade clauses and no movement clauses, and it's stupid because just stop giving them. 
Um, you know, like I don't, mm-hmm. there's no reason. And, and Doug, statistically, Doug Armstrong is one of the worst av- abusers of this. And he's found ways to get out of them before. So I, you know, I'm not faulting him, but there's no reason to give Justin Falk a no movement clause or whatever he got. You're signing him to a big fat contract when he's brand new on the team. And if you had to give him that to convince him to sign, don't sign him right away. You know, mm-hmm. like give them the time, and if if that's if that's what it takes, if that's what you absolutely have to do to sign the player, and you absolutely are convinced that you have to sign a player, then fine, throw it in. But don't throw, toss them around like candy, even if you're relatively confident you can get out of them. Which I've heard Armstrong talk about it before, and just say, you know, or maybe that was John Mazalak. I don't know, one or the other of them talked about it and said, well. You know, I've started going into drama as a live voice, so it must have been him. <laughs> well, you know, like we're just we're just pretty confident that if it comes to the point where where either side wants a trade, it'll sort of be a mutual thing. And it's like, yeah, maybe, but like I just don't, I just don't give them. Just don't give them. I don't get that. I don't. Yeah, it's like if you're if you're gonna, that's yeah, it's sort of like a prenuptial thing where it's like, look, if you don't think it's gonna happen, if you. Mm-hmm. They're like, well, then just give it to me. It's but it's also like, okay, but I if I need to have all my options open. So if anything, I guess I'm spending other people's money, but I'd be like, might as well just pay them a little bit more for a little longer and be able to trade them if you need to or whatever. Because it seems like you're already getting yourself handcuffed. Which which one is the more limiting one? I can never remember the no movement move. is the more limiting, yeah, because that okay. one, that's the one where you have to like protect them from an expansion draft and maybe you i don't know what else like you can't send them down to the ahl or something but mm-hmm. you can't buy them out i don't know but it is more restrictive for sure it doesn't ever feel like when they talk about how much a contract is going to be or for the amount of time it was going to be and then they talk about oh but it's actually this amount now that we give them one of these you know clauses and it's like that wasn't a big enough difference for me personally for yeah. like that to for that to matter so might as well just not give it to them mm-hmm. yeah i agree completely uh, the next point on this list, the next three are kind of more a little outside the box and probably something that they could agree on more likely. But uh, one of them is fixing arbitration just because it's a convoluted process and and both te- both parties the way it is now come in with ridiculous demands so that they can whittle away to something in the middle. Um, you know, so like Joel Edmondson will ask for five years and seven million per season or you know some probably a little less ridiculous than that but something ridiculous Mm -hmm. and and doug armstrong will say one year for three million or two years for two million or whatever and then they have to find middle ground uh it's just a mess and it's kind of a mess for both sides and nobody wants to go there uh but it's also like what system do you choose one of the things they proposed was baseball system where you bring in an independent arbitrator and he just picks one of the two proposals rather than kind of hammering out a middle ground which in theory would make the two sides be more realistic about their demands you know because if one of them either goes way over or goes way under they're going to get screwed uh but um that's like you know i don't know it's interesting but it's kind of like okay but what do you do and the same (laughs) same goes for the next one which was addressing long-term injured reserve ltir it's you know it's also messy but like how do you fix it you know and then the last one, which I thought was very interesting, was more of a small market competitive balance thing, adding compensatory draft picks 
currently, which I barely even knew this, you're eligible to get a draft pick in the middle of the second round uh, if you um, so if you draft a player in the first round and he never signs with your team. Uh, so I barely knew that was the case, but oh, wow. apparently it is the case. And they would be kind of, their argument was either or both adding that for the second and third round, which would be a mm-hmm. lot different because you'd basically have, I mean, you'd have, you'd pass on a lot more players then. Uh, mm-hmm. you're, you're pretty, it's, it's a tough sw- pill to swallow to not sign your own first round pick either to admit that you blew it that badly or just not come to terms with a guy. Um, you know, Connor Bleakley situation, woof. Uh, but um, <laughs> draft pick. the other one, which is more like a baseball thing, is is having compensatory draft picks for free agents who don't sign, but that's probably not going to happen because that makes it a lot harder for uh, players to just get signed and, and negotiate and get re-signed. So, I don't know. So is that I, like if so that's like if say Petrangelo like didn't resign with the Blues, we get some sort of compensatory yeah, draft pick, get like a second or third rounder sort of thing. Interesting. Yeah. Which I mean, I'm in favor of from a team perspective. That'd be great. I mean, it's still not a. I think you'd have if you were going to do it at all, you'd have to make it so it's like some compensation, but it's not enough to make the decision on. You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like it's like you're easily passing on players for that. A third round pick or even a late second round pick is like, okay, this is better than absolutely nothing, but it's also nowhere near Alex Petrangelo, you know. So Yeah, I get yeah, exactly. I get something for this, but it's not like I decided, oh, that's what I want. Mm-hmm. Cause right now in MLB you get like a late first round pick if you offer a, a player an arbitration if you offer them a, a I forget what it's called the qualifying offer and they mm. reject it they had the team that signs them then has to surrender a first round pick to you which is, can be a disaster on both sides because then you know a team doesn't want to sign a player now if it is the added incentive of losing a first round pick and it makes it a lot easier for teams to not resign a player because mm-hmm. hey I'm going to get a, a decent first round pick uh, because of this. Um, so, yeah, we're just like putting landmines out there. Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a mess, and I don't think it, the hockey world wants more messes, but it's it's interesting to talk about. I think that's something the hockey world is going to do now, because it seems like a mess. Yeah, if it's a mess, they probably would want that. Um, Ian, where do we go from here? We, we open up everyone else's mailbox and we steal their mail. <laughs> this is time for a segment called Steal People's Mail, brought to you by Simply USPCS. Safe. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, anything. Anything about security, uh, you probably want to lock on your mailbox. Uh, but yeah, you, you found some questions for mailbags that were interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a, a question on Twitter that we want to talk about, uh, and we'll just... It's kind of a kind of a grab bag from here on out. So, would you like to lead us into the great beyond, the great unknown? Yeah. So, the first two questions were from a mailbag from Jeremy Rutherford at the Athletic, covers the Blues. Uh, one of the questions this week was, whenever we do climb out, this being the, I guess, the Blues or the entire NHL, whenever we do climb out of this and the games restart, who among the Blues is more likely to excel from the first faceoff? Who is more likely to take a while to ramp up? And why? 
So basically, what what players do you think are going to be great out of the gate, and what players do you think are are going to be a little stale? Uh, well, Justin Falk. No. <laughs> <laughs> Some um, things will never change. I mean, you know, obviously, I would think Tarasenko will be stale because he hasn't played hockey in like nine months now. Mm-hmm. Um, I would think a guy, you know, as we were just heaping praises on him earlier, a guy like Ryan O'Reilly is just maniacal and will be prepared no matter what. Um, and then I could see I could see some of the younger guys scuffling a little bit, Robert Thomas and and uh, Vince Dunn and the, and those sorts of people, just because they're, you know, I I don't want to I don't want to assume, but I don't know that they're not more willing to just kind of go home and forget about hockey and sort of rest on the assumption that like, oh, my body will be fine. You know, I can play Fortnite all day, whatever. Um, yeah. or, or just, you know, it, even if it's not that, they just don't have as much experience of like getting adjusted to the NHL game quickly and coming back from injury, which is probably what this is most comparable to. Even if you're healthy, you know, it's like, it's that same sort of, okay, instead of having a full preseason, I have to ramp up really quickly and get ready now that I'm a hundred percent. Um, so yeah, I, I would kind of lean along those lines, and then one interesting player that f- may very well fall in there somehow is Scott Perunovic, uh, coming up from the NCAA game because I think his uh, contract would start this year if uh, we resume play. So that's another person to keep in mind. I'll say yeah, I think that the goalies. I think goalies are gonna have a hard time, like all goalies. <laughs> Just because you haven't been facing NHL shots, mm-hmm. you know, yet, or at, by that time the you know games are played again, you've had some practice, but it's just not going to be. You're not going to be in the rhythm yet. But um, yeah, I think you're right. People like O'Reilly or these guys that are constantly practicing their game are going to be ones that are are on their game a lot faster than other guys. And then even I'd say some of those like grinders and things like that, those lower line players that game relies a lot more on like them being physical and them, you know, imposing themselves and other players. I think that's going to be something that they can easily jump right back into versus stick handling or having the perfect pass and perfect shooting and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Could already imagine in all the coaches, every coach ever talking about, you know, when we get back to playing, it's going to be like straight lines, you know, North South hockey, <laughs> they gotta, you know, none of this funny business got to really get in there, dig deep, get pucks behind Pucks in deep. Just oh yeah, it, it is either gonna be what? Which do you think is more likely that it will be sloppy, terrible, um, like pre early like October hockey right from the beginning, or that it'll be like trap game like two thousands hockey where there's just zero scoring and oh, super boring. I guess I'm leaning towards the former. Like I'm thinking it's just going to be like all over the place hockey, mm-hmm. but I think it's going to be like preseason level of like execution mixed yeah. with like the hype of the playoffs. So it's just going to be like everyone's so pumped and like people are flying and the pucks flying over, but nothing is nothing productive is getting done. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like lots of movement, but like the puck is in the neutral zone still. It's I like it's be lots of weird drop pa- drop passes to fucking nobody. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see like who is actually committed to playing this year and who's not. You know, because I could see even a team like the Bruins or a team like the Blues, to be fair, being like, I don't really give a shit. You know, <laughs> like yeah, I don't like, really care anymore. This is kind of a half-ass season and. Winning the Stanley Cup with no fans would feel hollow anyway, and we just mm-hmm. did it 
you know, and in the case of the Bruins, like most of the players on that team have a memory of doing it. And it's just like, it will be, it will be hard to get everybody convinced to go. So it'll be interesting to see how all those factors play. It'll be, yeah. And I also wonder too, like what it's been, it's been over or it's been about two months since like, no, it's been a little over two months, I guess, since like, yeah, the season was put on pause. And like you said, I think it's comparable to, a player that's been injured and out for a long time in terms of like what this is like, but it's just interesting to me because there are a lot of players or younger players that haven't gone through an injury that would last them that long. And I just wonder how many people are, people are used to going two months plus without even being on the ice, you know, um, cause a lot, there's no ice rinks open and so everyone can practice on their own. And maybe if they're one of the lucky ones as sort of like the artificial ice at home or something like that, they can practice skating on. It's just like, you've gone two whole months without being on the ice and with like a whole team. It just feels like it's going to be really weird to get back on the ice. Even if you give these guys like two weeks, I'm sure they catch up, you know, get caught up to speed a lot faster than any of us would, but it just still feels like it's going to be one of those things where once you get them put on the ice, the whole another team an opposing team, it's just going to be all bets are off. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a mess. It'll be fun, but a mess for sure. Uh, you had this next question here. You want to read it or should I read it? I can read it. I don't know who this is from. So this isn't, this isn't me talking folks. This is just some, some guy that some guy or girl that messaged us to Jeremy and we pulled it out of his mailbox. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he answered the question. So we didn't really pull out of his mailbox. We pulled it out of his trash. That's... <laughs> uh, he said, this person said, the thing I disliked the most about the Justin Falk acquisition was Vince Dunn being bumped to the third pair. I really like what I've seen from him, and I was looking forward to him taking that next step, not playing fewer minutes. That said, with the left defenseman we have coming up, namely Scott Prunovich, who seems to be the small, puck-moving, offensive-minded defenseman, do you see Dunn as being expendable? Um, I, I sort of agree with this guy's question in the sense that, like, I mean, my, my single biggest disagreement with Craig Berube's coaching style, really my only big one, has been the underutilization of Vince Dunn. Because I just think what he excels at, he is borderline elite at, even as young as he is in terms of puck control and play creation and offensive IQ. Unfortunately, um, he's not as stout a defensive defenseman, and that is you know kind of what uh, Berube prizes and He's kind of at the old school mindset, and that makes it harder for Vince to get the minutes that I think he deserves and the opportunities I think he deserves. Plus, he's behind some more veteran guys, so it's harder for him to even get the power play time that he should certainly have uh, because, you know, it's like, well, Petrangelo and Pareko have to be out there even if they're not the best guys on that unit. With that said, I don't think he's the least bit expendable personally. Because I don't mm-hmm. think we have any idea, you know, if Perinovich is even going to be in the NHL next season. Um, and um, even if he was, I personally am completely comfortable with having a Petrangelo done, uh, Pareko, Perinovich top four. I think those are guys are both kind of perfect complements to the 
the stalwarts on the right side being more of the defensive shutdown guy. Uh, I think they can make a lot of magic happen between them. I don't know that that's what Baruby would do. Uh, and of <laughs> course, the, all, any of that hinges on Petrangelo coming back at all. Uh, and Vince Dunn is a restricted free agent, so I can certainly see the possibility of him leaving, and it makes me really sad. Uh, but, I mean, I, I would not use the word expendable for two reasons. The first of which I think he's way too talented to ever look at as expendable. I think he's mm-hmm. someone that if you are going to move in a different direction, you want to get really, really good value for. Um, and then just more more so than that, even if we could get good value, I wouldn't be that interested in trading him because he's our best left-handed defenseman to me by a long, by a long shot, even including Marco Scandella, who I think was good. Uh, but, um, you know, I'm fine with a Fox-Scandella pairing on the third pairing. Uh, I don't think Berube will be, which is part of what makes me nervous about Dunn, but uh, that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, that third pairing of Fox, Scandella would be a lot of money on the third pairing. Not that that matters to me personally, but it's still one of those like, oh my goodness. It would be, but it's also like, you know, to me, a third pairing is just like the, the it's just the third pairing, you know, like that doesn't mean you have to give them 12 minutes or or mm-hmm. not use them in certain situations. Like if you, almost every team in the league would kill to have a defensive core of Petrangelo, Pareko, Falk, Dunn, Perunovic, uh, and uh, Scandella, you know, like mm-hmm. that is a huge improvement for most teams. So however you deploy them, if those are the six we end up going with, um, you know, I think you're you're fine. It's just, yeah, can you get can you put the ego and the veteran preference aside to to let it play out where the best players get the most minutes, even if those guys are younger? I don't know. I'm yeah, I was like, I I just don't like you're saying see done and expendable in like the same the same sentence, mm-hmm. and especially like I do think I mean I'd have to I'd have to really dig and try and remember all the different like no movement clauses and stuff we've given out. But I would think if we're doing, what is it? The seven, three, one protection thing for the Seattle expansion draft that Dunn would be one of those guys that we're protecting. I don't, yeah. I don't think we have to protect Fox. So it'd be like, and if let's just say Petrangelo walks, then I think it's easy to be Franco and, and Dunn and somebody else. Um, I don't even think you'd have to protect Prunovich or any of those younger guys at that point. Yeah. Cause they're on entry level deals. So he's an easy protection. I think for a while people, we're worried about who we'd have to protect prior to getting rid of Edmondson because it sounded like people were like, oh, it's got to be Petrangelo, Pareko, Edmondson, or you know something like that. And now that Edmondson's gone, and everyone seems to not enjoy Falk as much. And even though I like Justin Falk just fine, I would definitely be okay with Seattle grabbing him from us just yeah. from a salary perspective. Um, so like, I think it's easy that you protect Dunn and if that's the case, then he's obviously not expendable. I mean, honestly, I could see us trying to incentivize them taking Falk or, you know, just because of the length of that contract. But, um, you guys, I mean, people have to be aware that Armstrong signed Falk for a reason, whatever his plans may have been. It's not like he committed seven years and 
six million a season or whatever it was kind of mm-hmm. willy-nilly you know he he saw him fitting into the long-term structure of this team whether that's in replacement of Alex Petrangelo which I still think is an option we don't consider enough because we just kind of live in the well it's probably going to get done world and like maybe that's really not Armstrong's intention or mm-hmm. whether it was more of an insurance policy like I think people just because you as an individual might be kind of over the Justin Falk experiment, I don't think that means Doug Armstrong is necessarily at all. And the idea that you can just trade him no problem with that contract after a really rough season is kind of, you know, voodoo voodoo economics as far as I'm concerned <laughs> from an NHL perspective. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I do think an area we were lacking in even just a couple of years ago was – defense in terms of like our pipeline and then all of a sudden it seems like between Dunn improving as he has and having Prunovich in there and then having Mikola in there and everything it just seems like we even have like Mitch Renke on the right side that could come up at some point or another you know in the future it just seems like we actually have a lot going on back there in terms of like flexibility and who we could use on the back end Mm -hmm. for sure yeah I agree with that it's Mm -hmm. It's a good problem to have, honestly, because even mm-hmm. if you have to get rid of Dunn, you're going to get a really nice return for him. So, you know, you're you're blessed uh, in that respect. But, um, you know, I don't I don't want to see him weave. He's probably pound for pound, maybe my favorite blue player. And he's certainly up there if he's not number one. So, yeah, it's that's it, not something I want to consider. The Dunn jersey. Uh, right. We had a Twitter question. From Adam Rika at Sick Slick Rick this past week. And he said, a year later, does the hand pass game fuel the Blues to win the Cup? So, Steven, do you think that game in which you did a solo episode where you went nuts, (laughs) and rightfully so, about the hand pass? I listened back to some of that episode this week. I know I texted you this, but... Uh, just to kind of like put myself in the mindset again and the amount of like just repeating myself I did because I was so flabbergasted uh, the amount of times I would go that was unbelievable unbelievable (laughs) was just like the amount of times I did that was unbelievable so uh but yeah uh sorry go ahead and you you had a point to finish oh I just want to say do you I do you think that game is what ended up you know propelling the Blues to win the Cup. I don't know if I personally, I don't know if I go as far as saying that propelled them to win the Cup completely, among, among a bunch of other things. But I will say I do think that pretty much just ended the Sharks. They, their one thing they did that got them their second victory in that entire series and their only victory from that point on, uh, I think, demolished them. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I if it think... wasn't that. It was the if it wasn't that, it was the way they answered their press conference questions. Yeah, I mean, I no, I think you're exactly right, and I think it really isn't so much the hand pass itself as the fact that um, they came out and just dominated the next two games. And I think, I mean, obviously that's a whole soup, right? Like those are all ingredients in the same formula. But um, I think, I think what it did. I don't, I don't think the Blues players were like, I'm winning the Cup just to teach this damn wig its lesson, if that's the nature of the question. But I do think it played a hugely pivotal role in two ways. First of all, you know, to 
late in the playoffs, and we know this from the fact that the last time we played the Sharks in the Western Conference Final, that same game and that same series was kind of the the pivot point where we just sort of went out with a whimper that after that. Um, mm-hmm. That late in the playoffs, you really need an energy boost. And I think it certainly gave us that and galvanized us to say, oh, no, we're not we're not letting it in like that, you know. Um, but I think more over more on top of that, all athletes, but particularly hockey players, are extremely superstitious. And I think if you're kind of looking at the the weight of trying to break a 53 year Stanley Cup list drought and even a 50 or 48 year or whatever it is drought without a Stanley Cup final appearance and you can come back from that game and center yourself the way they did even to just answer the questions and then go on and just dominate the next game. I think it gave them the confidence they needed, like you said, at least to get to the Stanley Cup final. But I think even more than that, it was kind of that that superstition breaker of, of like, okay, even the worst thing that can conceivably go wrong can't stop us. And now nothing can really stop us but ourselves, you know? Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I think it definitely made them feel like it was in their hands. It's mm-hmm. sort of like, you know, if we don't win the cup, it's, it's our fault. You know, we could have, we could have done it. It would have been something that was within our grasp. I think we talked about that a lot in the Bruins series too, where it was like, you know what, this is like, it's all up to them now. You know, we can't really do anything but say, you know, they're a good enough team to win it. And if they're as good as they think they are, as good as we think they are, they will do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not one of those things where it's like all the, all the stars have the line just perfectly. Like you always, I think at least I always seem to think when it came to the winning the Stanley, I was like, Oh man, if every little thing has to go right. And granted you do get, like we've talked about numerous times, a lot of luck mm-hmm. uh, to get that far. Not everything has to go completely right. There really does have to be, um, some adversity that you have to overcome. Generally speaking, it seems very rare that a team just literally walks its way into the finals and nothing, you know, without any problem whatsoever, maybe excluding the 2012 uh, Kings, yeah. LA Kings. In fact, I think what their first round series is probably their only adversity. Maybe yeah. that's what it was. And then they just walked right through everybody. And then, I mean, but, with the Blues, I think it sort of came out in a wash with some of the calls in the Stanley Cup final that, Bozak trip being the most notable one. It was Bozak, right? Who got the trip on that and then put yeah. one who got the goal. But um, you know, I mean I just it's the there's a reason it's called the hardest trophy in sports to win. Over whatever, what's the maximum? Twenty eight games officiated and I read a statistic the other day that like no teams won it in less than like twenty three or something in like ages, except mm. except for maybe the Kings. Um it was some ridiculous thing. But anyway, like over that long a period, you're going to f- get injuries. You're going to get bad calls. You're going to get some good calls or, you know, favorable calls. And mm. you're going to injure some of the other guys, you know, like some that you're just going to face adversity. There's no way not to. So you have to be equipped not only to play better, but to have the mental toughness. And I think, you know, a lot of that was already there, as you can see just by the way the boys handled it in the immediate press conference. And I'm sure they weren't as calm and composed behind the scenes away from the cameras as they were on cameras and in interviews. But the reality is when they got a mic shoved in their face, they were, you know, they were cold and they were honest. They basically said, yeah, it was clearly bullshit, but Mm -hmm. they weren't making excuses. They weren't complaining. They were trying to end the interview quickly and not give the media any fodder for 
quotes and firestorms and and they moved on and they dominated the rest of that series and and then they you know had the Carl Gunnarsson comeback and the rest was kind of history from that point so yeah, yeah. I mean, it's certainly to me you can look at a lot of factors in that postseason and maybe in the next week or two we should do like a real retrospective and look at it a year later but you can look at um kind of that that last second Bozak goal uh in the winnipeg game five uh you can obviously look at uh i would say game six in the stars series even more than winning in game seven winning game six with your back to the wall when so Mm -hmm. many blues teams before you would have crumpled in that same situation um you know but but up there with any of those and up there with the gunnerson goal uh uh, the uh, yeah, the hand passes is probably the biggest moment in terms of turning the team's fortune. I would say. Yeah, I think that entire run and especially the hand pass just taught me, or made me believe now that like if you're a team that's going to win the Stanley Cup or you deserve to win it, you will overcome these things. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's a good way to put it. Steven, we're gonna we're gonna segue away from hockey now because it's quarantine times and hockey. Does not exist. <laughs> so figment of our imagination. Which is a question I found when I typed into Google fun questions to ask each other. And I wanted to ask you, what's the dumbest way you've been injured? Oh man. I'm I'm glad I saw this question in advance because there's so many. <laughs> because uh, so, so many. I just like I don't I I'm I'm pretty, you know, I'm fairly well coordinated, but I find ways. Uh, and the most recent one was just a couple of weeks ago. I took I've been taking a lot of walks, as I already mentioned, and I took one at night uh, on a rainy night, and I got about halfway up the street behind mine, and I hit a patch of, like, just a mud slick, basically, and basically did the splits, skinned my knee super badly, landed with my phone, uh, like, pointing down so that it damaged the um, screen protector in multiple places, Uh, and that took a couple, you know, I was sore for a few days, and then I would just, the, the bleeding knee the scab took weeks to recover from uh another one i've had (laughs) i feel like this is a laundry list but there are two more that really stick out i cut myself with a box cutter while i was working at deerberg's uh still can sort of see the scar uh it was just so dumb i was just being dumb you know like I i was just not being careful at all uh and in terms of stupid like you know, it didn't. It almost didn't really hurt just because it was such a clean cut, but it was pretty deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely should have gone and gotten stitches, but I was a, you know, I was like, I'd never gotten stitches before, and I was in high school and thought I was, you know, unstoppable, and so I was just like, nah, it'll be fine, you know, and I've eventually healed, but like it was dumb. And then the biggest, the biggest injury I've ever had was also really dumb, but I was young, so it's a little more forgivable. But I was riding my bike on the the street I grew up on. I don't know if you ever saw that house or were in it, but I mean, you you were in that area a lot when you were growing up too. So the street I grew up on was um, like I was at the my house was basically at the top of a big hill that went down into a cul-de-sac. So it was like a great bike riding street. 
uh, because it was, you know, in, insulated from a lot of traffic and just a big hill that you could ride down really fast. And one time I rode down it really fast, and for some reason I decided to brake using only the front wheel, um, mm. which I guess I maybe handbrakes were pretty new to me and I just didn't get it, or maybe I was an idiot, but I was definitely going fast enough that the bike flipped entirely. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I broke my wrist at three different places and skinned my knee really badly, um, and I got, I mean, I got pretty lucky. I don't, I probably wasn't wearing a helmet. Wear helmets, kids. Be smart. Be smarter than we were as, as children. But, um, uh, I, you know, I definitely, I was in a cast for a number of months after that and, and quite stupid. Uh, but, uh, you know, shout out to, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Robinson, our neighbors, uh, who were there to take care of me because neither of my parents were home yet at that point. I was probably, that was in fourth grade, I think. So I was what? Would that be like 10, 11? I don't know. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but yeah, that was not a nice, not a fun night and made me feel really dumb. <laughs> Imagine, oh, that boy flipped his bike over. <laughs> yeah, he's, still, he's still laying there. Well, I'm going to go help him out. <laughs> That's right. They probably felt exactly like that. He was writhing in pain. That reminded me of a dumb one I had that I completely forgot about. That one time... Uh, my parents' house is at the bottom of a large hill, bottom of like two large hills, mm-hmm. sort of, that come together. And so well, up at the very top of that hill uh, is a Dairy Queen. And me and a friend went to go get like milkshakes or something from there, like in probably like the very end of middle school, beginning of high school. And we were coming back with them. And as we were going down the hill on our bikes, I would like right hand dominant so i was like i want to hold i want to hold this shake in my right hand mm. and i did so but the i couldn't access the the back brakes then because <laughs> i was on the right hand so as we we're going down this hill i just kept pumping the the front brakes slowly to uh-huh. try and get myself to slow down and i did the most slow after doing this like multiple times the most slow head over heels yourself over the handlebars like yeah, collision ever like to the ground uh-huh. where it was just like the slow like oh 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 on one wheel I'm in front I'm and I'm over <laughs> and it was just like no 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 and of course like the, the milkshake that I was trying to drink that was gone everywhere skinned all that stuff my friend who kept riding pet down past me and then I was like are you gonna stop and he was like I got bowling practice and just kept going. <laughs> So he was gone. So it was just me, like walking back to my house, covered in like milkshake and that's blood. The, that's the like worst. Of, I don't know if you're like me. I'm very much the like, don't pay any attention to me when I'm injured. Like, oh yeah. You know, like uh, the the other day when I, for some reason, that time when I was talking about walking through the rainstorm, I passed a couple of cars uh on on my brief walk home which is funny because like there are no cars on the road at all so i don't know how i passed two or three in that brief instance uh but um i just in my head i was like please don't stop and offer me a ride i just walk <laughs> ground just let me walk and ground uh and yeah anytime i'm injured i'm just like you know that that the other night when i slipped i was like nope i'm just gonna i'm gonna limp home I don't care. I could take a shortcut. I could do a lot of things, but I'm just going to limp home and make it and be a man. Because that's what men do. They take no support. They ask for no help. You know, <laughs> that's... Just limp home in the rain. Yeah, exactly. We, I had another one where I worked at a, was it a Panera, a Breadco, a St. Louis Breadco, whatever you want to call it. Take your pick. Um, in college when I was in Springfield, Missouri, and I 
when I worked in back, or I guess when you just work period because of like the way the, I don't know, the stuff that the ground was made out of back there so you could wash wash the ground easily when you were cleaning it and everything at night was made out of stuff that you were tiles that you would slip on really easily if it was wet. And so you had to wear like non-slip shoes back there. And so I had those, I bought those new and then I put on like wool socks because they were like the only thing that made those shoes like fit on my foot correctly just mm -hmm. because they were slightly too big, but also the wool sock was like too thick. Mm -hmm. And so I managed to somehow over the course of like a week, maybe I just never looked at my foot. I don't know how this happened. Maybe it's like a day. I can't even remember anymore. I would wear these wool socks. I would put these shoes on. It made them too tight around my toes. I was on my feet all day. I'd just walk around. It felt like both of my big toes after like a 10-hour work shift have been like, like I'd kicked both my big toes into like a wall several times. Mm. They just like just hurt so much. And then at some point or another, I remember taking off my shoes at home and everything and looking at my both those toes. And I had like bruised them underneath because they were just so tight. <laughs> And then like those those get um those get because they're bruised, I think there was actually like some sort of like I guess it wasn't just bruised, but like some sort of, you know, cut or yada yada from pressure. So there was like blood underneath them. And so they scabbed oh. under my toenail. Oh. And so like my toenails over the course of like a year, like my big toes grew in like just random ways, you know, like up off of my toe because they're going over the scam and then that scam had to come out eventually. I did this all on my own, by the way. <laughs> like pulled those out when those got pushed out and then like the toenail had to go back down. And I look at my bare feet now and they're completely fine. But yeah, at the time that took like, I think like almost a year for oh. all that to like, you know, get phased out and everything. That is rough. I do not yeah. like that at all. <laughs> for, anyone, for anyone else that hates what I'm talking about, I could take a toenail clipper and i could take like the little file the little thing that you could stick under your toenail to get like the dirt out uh -huh. i could stick that all the way down i could stick that all the way over my toenail met like my foot oh. or my toe it was just like open hole lovely <laughs> lovely yeah. and then the one i actually thought i was gonna go with was in middle school we played flag football they tell you all the time not to tie your flag they tell you just put in a little clip so when someone grabs a flag they can pull it and i caught up to some guy that had the ball and i slid my finger in between like the little belt flag and a shirt and I yanked on as hard as I could and he had tied it so I just like ripped my finger oh. <laughs> and like nothing happened but initially it just hurt a lot and nothing happened and I remember looking at my finger and then over the course of like a day it like swelled up like a watermelon <laughs> and somewhere in there I had like broken a chunk off my knuckle and had to wear like a club version of a cast over my hand for like half of eighth grade. <laughs> I never knew about that one, I don't think. Oh, yeah. And then the thing is, you can't, you know, you have to put like a bag over it uh -huh. and stuff because you can't like shower with it and everything. Oh, God, that thing smelled so bad. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm glad that happened in middle school because I'm just assumed I smelled. I uh -huh. just assume everyone just smelled. True. And so I was like, okay, this is the best time. I thought, yeah, of, this happened. I thought of one more thing uh, that I had done. And when you talked about doing something that you're explicitly told not to do, is <laughs> when, I was, when I was real, real young. Um, one of my neighbors had a Dalmatian and it was like a, it was like a retired fire dog or something. And they told me like we were playing with it. It was perfectly docile and I have no fear of dogs and I still don't, but like it's totally docile, but they told me, <laughs> oh, fuck, this is so stupid. This is the dumbest <laughs> for sure. But at least I was really young because they told me like, don't, whatever you do, like he's totally safe. It's totally great, but don't put your hands over your head 
because he's trained like you know like when they attack like the stuff the stuffed humans when they put on the big suit and like train him as a jack dog or whatever like he's trained to take that as a signal to like tackle someone and like bite him down or whatever and of course i did it and of course i got bitten and <laughs> so I it. it was just the, the epitome of like i don't think this could actually work oh hey it worked and now my oh, back yeah. is dog bitten which i'm sure created a, a whole host of concerns for my parents because they had to probably get the dog rabies tested or whatever but like you know, to me, it hurt for a while and then it was fine. But like, God, it was stupid. <laughs> but I was real like that's I don't even really remember it happening other than just the shame associated with it. So I must have been real young. But This dog's got to tackle the small child. That's right. Oh, my God. I, I, think, I mean, good for you for having nothing against dogs. I think as a kid, that'd be that could be scarred. I think I might have for a while where I was like pretty nervous about him. But like now I'm like totally fine. Yeah, that reminds me of being uh in like my mom's van right before we were going somewhere and she went into like a subway to get me and my sister some food Mm -hmm. and i think i was in i must have been in like sixth grade fifth or sixth grade i like old enough to know better and i pulled out like the cigarette lighter and looked at it and i remember being like these are hot enough to light cigarettes and I was like, and then I, but then I looked at it and I was like, but how hot is that? You know, who, who knows? And so I just barely put my finger on it and pulled it off and like the, you know, had some like burn on there and it like welted up and had like a pus and all that other crap. And I was just uh, like, wow, what an idiot. Because yeah. I remember like my mom came back, she's like, what happened? And I was like, I touched a cigarette lighter. And she's like, why? And I'm like, I think even as like a, you know, 10 year old, 11 year old, I had enough knowledge to be like, you know what? For like real stupid reasons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's one of the worst things is when when you know as you're doing it, like, this is a mistake. I'm, I'm making a mistake right now. And then it yeah. turns out exactly how you thought. And it's like, yep, that was a mistake. The number of times I've cut something with a knife and cut towards me uh-huh. and then cut a little too hard but still caught myself from it getting me. And I'm like, but this is what you thought the entire time you're cutting it. Why Why didn't you stop it ten times? You were like, no, 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 no. One I've done multiple times which is so dumb is like you like empty a can of soup like cream of mushroom and like for some reason i'll be like oh i want to taste this and i'll like grab some with my finger and then you'll cut <laughs> your finger on the, oh, the yeah. can. i've done that at least twice where i'm doing it and i'm like don't do this you'll cut your fr- ow <laughs> <laughs> that was the end of the story so ian of all the myriad stupid ways we've been injured i noticed that in no point in our history have either of us been injured in a shootout with federal agents which brings <laughs> us to another episode of two guys one cups real talk talking about Waco today folks it's uh sweeping the nation uh for for reasons passing my understanding people are real interested in government oversight all of a sudden <laughs> uh but uh yeah we uh we 
didn't really intend to both watch Waco, uh, but we have both watched Waco. And for those of you who have participated in our newly named Real Talks before, uh, that's R-E-E-L for anyone not getting the terrible pun that I insist on making. Um, you know, spoilers abound ahead uh, if you haven't seen the show. Uh, Reality, this, you know. this is a little different because if you know the incident, you know how things turned out. Uh, mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, uh, for anyone that wants to watch the show or hasn't watched the show and doesn't want to have anything spoiled, or just for anyone who's not interested in talking about Waco, uh, you know, you are you are given our blessing to depart at this juncture, and we'll see you next week and have a good time and all that. Uh, I Speaking of spoilers, my brother and I watched this at the same time, but he started before I did, but for someone... For some reason, this one really grabbed me in like the binge watch mode, and I mm-hmm. probably watched all six episodes in the space of like twenty four hours or maybe forty eight. Uh, I really went through it fast, so I had lapped him by the time I was done. And he texted me at one point like, "Oh, you know, such such and such a thought about David Koresh or whatever." And then in the at the end of the text, it goes, he types, "I'm in episode five, as if to say, don't spoil anything for me." <laughs> and I really wanted to write back, Bill you know how this ends. <laughs> I don't want to, I mean, I just, I, you know, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's not a great ending for the Davidians. <laughs> but yes, uh, Waco, for any of you that don't know, based on real events, uh, is the story of the 1993 siege mm-hmm. of the Branch Davidian compound at Mount Carmel outside of Waco, Texas, which is a very real historical event and a very tragic one uh, in the sense that I think like 96 of the of the compound residents and four federal agents were killed over the course of this 53 day siege uh, and uh, including like something like 25 or 26 children. Uh, so mm. very sad story. Uh, historically very fascinating because there's just a lot of cloudiness in terms of like who's actually at fault for different things uh, and who's actually responsible and how crazy were the Davidians, you know, how dangerous were they, all those sorts of things are kind of open questions. The series takes a very pro-Davidian stance, uh, and probably its biggest fault to me is, like, it's way too positive about Koresh, who was a legitimately crazy person, uh, mm-hmm. and probably a legitimately bad dude in some ways, and was, you know, knocking up 14-year-olds uh, and such. But... yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. I've been talking. Yeah, I was, no, I was gonna say like, yeah, I, it was interesting because at first I thought when my girlfriend brought it up, I thought it was a documentary. Mm-hmm. I did like too. A documentary I series. I was like, oh, okay. And then, what was it? What was it that like made me? I think they showed him. What's like the first scene? Is it him? He's got it's the him. rock oh, and roll they, scene. The very start st- is the is the like the. They beginning Tarantino of the it, right? Because he do, he opens yeah. the door and gets shot at, and then they flash back to Ruby Ridge and go back. So yeah, for a split second they show him, and I realized that he's an actor because I don't really remember what I'd like what David Crash looks like, but I know what this actor looks like, and yeah. he was very close. But I was still like, wait a second, you're like Taylor Kish or whatever, and mm-hmm. I was like, oh wait, okay, this is like a show. Um, and then I found out that uh, who's the who's the um, actor that played the negotiator? I can't think of his uh, name. Michael, Michael Shannon. Shannon. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, he's fantastic. I like him as oh, an actor. But um, in that show. when I saw him in the uh, in the credits, I was like, "Hell yeah!" Now I'm I'm in for the ride. 
I but, saw uh, a guy named Culkin in the credits. Yes. And I guess I didn't know that there are a lot of Culkin actors. I think from, he's like the third from one. From that family? Yeah. So I just saw the name and I was like, I wonder if he's related to Macaulay Culkin. And then I saw his face and I was like, oh, he's related to Macaulay <laughs> Culkin. Oh, yeah. He's a, he's a clone. Uh, yeah, Michael Shannon played Gary Nessner who is the uh, character who wrote the book this was based off. I think it's it's largely based off of, of David Thibodeau, who's Rory Culkin's character, and uh, Michael Shannon's character, Gary Nessner. I found out from a different documentary that Gary Nessner uh, was not actually the lead negotiator. My guess is he was the character in the show who's like the negotiator sidekick like trainee mm-hmm. guy and he's probably younger uh because the the documentary i watched had the lead negotiator in it and so some of that was dramatized but even that documentary which was pretty much the polar opposite in to- terms of being sort of anti-davidian was pretty open about like yes there were real disagreements between the the tactical military side of the fbi and the negotiation peaceful settlement side uh, and there were a lot of, you know, discussions and arguments over tactics. Um, I thought, I mean, I th- as as far as a show, I thought that the acting was amazing in this. I thought everybody mm-hmm. was pretty much just bombed throughout the whole thing. I've, I haven't seen Taylor Kish in a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. I've Like, I've seen him present in things. But I haven't really watched all the movies that he's been in. But I thought, like, I was completely convinced by the end of it that that was, like, david koresh i was watching you know i was like oh that's like that dude yeah he was fantastic you already said michael shannon was fantastic Mm -hmm. i thought john lake wasamo was really good in his role i think one of my biggest disappointments in the show was that they really didn't revisit that character at all who was a, a totally real guy according to the documentary and base and very much was in the compound when the davidians found out about the assault uh, and very much did try to go out and bring an end to it, but couldn't get it done. Um, mm-hmm. I thought uh, Julia Garner uh, was really good, who was the the kind of love interest for David Thibodeau. Um, I thought Rory Culkin was really good. I just, yeah, I thought the cast brought it, and it was really awesome. And I'm like, I'm, I don't spend as much time watching dramas as comedies at nearly as much. So, like, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily always really noting a, a character's dramatic qualities or an actor's dramatic qualities, but I just thought everybody in this really did a great job. Um, mm-hmm. The guy who played Steve Schneider, uh, I, yeah, I just thought they were... Do you like his Wisconsin job. accent? Yeah, I did. Speaking of, this is a total departure, but uh, I saw Carrie Elves, I, whose name I can't pronounce, the Princess Bride guy, in a, mm-hmm. an episode of Seinfeld the other day, and that dude cannot hide his accent very well. Mm-hmm. It was like he was trying to go for New York, but I was like, dude, you carry Elves, you know? <laughs> he was not able to hide it very well. So I think there's a reason that he only plays characters now that are basically him. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> So the acting was fantastic. I thought the the way they laid out the series was really really good. Mm. Um, you know, I don't I don't always love the Tarantino style of like, I bet you're wondering how we got here, sort of thing. You know. Oh yeah. Um, I was worried that the 
they started with the siege in the middle or like at the beginning and that i was worried that was going to be like the middle of the series mm-hmm. or the very end of the series yeah did they get back think, to that point by the end of episode one or did it take till episode two i think it might have even been like three okay like somewhere in three or like they spent a lot more with the siege oh yeah because they, they had all the Legosama stuff so yeah it took a while for sure yeah like and i enjoyed it a lot but it was kind of weird maybe not weird but it took me by surprise yes how like pro davidian it was like and again i think there is a lot you could say in reality that like the government mishandled so like he's easy for sure but it was just interesting to me that like they were still kind of at the end they kind of went back and forth on um like david crush being a gross person i don't know that's what was weird it was like he seems like a nice guy like he really understands some things here and there he's just trying to interpret the bible you know in the way that he sees it like yeah that makes sense but he's also sleeping with a bunch of underage women they're like yeah but not by texas law it's half of it's okay and i'm like yeah but (laughs) yeah uh yeah i mean i think the story i mean the real historical story is so as so on surreal almost like you know like it's basically a a military installment that happened on american soil in the 90s you know like Mm -hmm. uh and the fact that it happened right after ruby ridge which you know again i'm not a history expert in that regard but basically a a guy who had a more or less minor uh gun violation kind of got surrounded in his home by atf agents alcohol tobacco and firearm agents and ended up they ended up shooting his wife which of course made it a bit of a more which, uh, tense situation and which i learned his- apparently kind of like you said they switched things around for dramatic effect mm-hmm. he, they might have killed his wife in reality oh okay i think his son died and his dog died or something okay and yeah. i want to say that they but they, and obviously in the in the show we watched they killed his wife and i wonder if they added that in there for the dramatic effect and tie-in of like seeing how all these other women are going to be dying in this later on, you know, sort of tie-in where it's yeah. like, hey, we're going to drop that person in there to foreshadow her later. I could be wrong. Maybe she did die, but I swear when I looked up Wikipedia because I couldn't remember the name of it, it was like his dog and his son or whatever. No, but I, I was like, oh, I, weird. That sounds right in hindsight. I wasn't sure about wife, so I could completely believe you. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's that same sort of just like, well, this thing got out of hand way too fast. And now, um, now it's gone downhill and the government's involved in this shootout. Uh, two killed, two wounded. And I'm just looking this up. Yeah. Uh, Des, no, Vicky Weaver was killed. So I guess, oh, okay. I think one of his sons maybe was too. Yeah, Samuel Weaver, yeah. who was a baby or a young kid. And then Randy Weaver was still alive. So mm-hmm. good for him, I guess. But... Yeah, so it goes from there into this whole siege scenario, and it definitely did probably take too much pain in um, trying to make it look like uh, David Koresh was uh, a likable, decent fellow, which I don't think there's a lot of evidence to suggest he was. Um, Did he actually, because you watched the documentary, did he actually get to like have his... I don't know, his like sermons and stuff broadcast like on the radio. Yeah. Like so they that, have that stuff was real for sure. Okay. Like he, the original agreement of broadcasting, uh, you know, cause in the, in the course of things that there's the initial firing, the initial fire that makes 
each side begin the standoff and mm-hmm. you know you can argue about even the the wisdom of sending basically a military unit to go get this guy uh, but they have that and then in that initial sort of like hey how do we end this they did the agreement about broadcasting his message and he thought he looked bad and so he stayed inside and and you know one of the, one of the narratives that the documentary made was kind of like he always saw this as sort of an apocalyptic scenario and a martyrdom scenario, which maybe he did. I don't know. That's not how the story told it, you know, in the in the Waco document or not documentary, Waco movie. And there are other documentaries that are less of that persuasion. So hard to know. But yeah, a lot of those details were real. The the psyops, the nightly, like the loud music and strobe lights and oh, stuff, yeah. that was very real. Um, and just, you know, I think when you look back, I don't know if we'd ever know who, you know, whether the, you know, because there's some, a lot of people who believe that the Davidians set the fire at the end of the day as a martyrdom sort of action. Uh, and then there, obviously the, the take of the show was that it was accidental and, and, you know, tragic. But I think when you watch the real footage of tanks rolling into a fragile compound and like pouring tear gas in on women and children, it's not something that was done with the primary concern being preserving human life. You know, yeah, <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was a millet. I think there's that one scene they had that, they had that character who was the DJ, the local morning like yeah. radio host guy, and I think he played such a pivotal role in kind of, sort of doing sort of the the think piece elements. You know, like hey, this is why this is so important, or like this is the perspective you need on this, where we're not going to have a we're not going to have a, a character say this in an awkward sort of third person omniscient narrative narrator sort of way. Um, but yeah, he made the point at one point of like. A police action is designed to de-escalate and prevent casualties and solve problems, and a military, you know, military operation is designed to win. And I think it mm-hmm. had definitely become a military operation by the end of it, whether or not the FBI is really at fault for starting the fire or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. I always wondered too. The one thing that stood out to me as like maybe this isn't reality or maybe it's added in just to get us from point a to point b is just like the fact that they had the ruby ridge stuff and then that directly led to like the atf being like hey we need a win and like hey we found a guy that's easy that we could easily raid and like be like see we were we were right to raid this guy because he had so many guns and they were all illegal so let's go raid him versus like i felt like that wasn't easy like okay they gave me they got me to a to b to c for the movie or for the series yeah. but like i do wonder what the real tipping point was for like the atf and the fbi to go raid crash or to go over there you know what i mean like they've been monitoring for a really long time anyways kind of like you said john leguizamo's character is the real guy so they did send someone in there to like infiltrate their their little commune but it was like i'm curious what was it that made them decide or even find out about this guy in the first place yeah i mean i think it was a little bit of that kind of um uh that situation uh where in the in the in the show they talk about like the they set the john leguizamo guys up to like investigate firearms claims for these people and i think it was a lot of that and maybe a little bit of like child abuse claims um, or maybe more child abuse claims, I don't know. But, like, yeah, they they had been monitoring him for a while, and I think that the town sheriff, who's 
was really in contact with them. The character is in the show, but the real guy existed. That was kind of a, a situation, too, where he was, like, comfortable with them and then kind of increasingly uneasy with them, sort of, but, you know, still had sort of a relationship with them. So it's hard. I mean, it's difficult to know because they were obviously cultish in nature and stockpiling firearms and not doing things that what we think of as normal people do, you know, but like, I don't know, I'm not a civil rights professor, law professor, and I don't know what extent they had the right to do that without being impeded, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting. And I, I think probably you're right that the, the point A to point B of Ruby Ridge to this was not as direct, but I do think they're kind of thematic tie-ins in terms of like the militarized sort of attitude of ATF and, and kind of ATF popping off and starting the crap and then like FBI having to come in and clean it up, um, you know, happened in both places, I think. So I do, uh, this has made me want to look more into like this incident and also just like general, like, I don't know, I guess like this series should have taught me like, Hey, maybe you need to look into like government oversight and what's going on. <laughs> with government. But it made me more interested. Like I want to look into like interesting little s- small subculture cults or whatever, and mm-hmm. just see what they're about and different different documentaries on those or anything like that um we talked a little bit i think they talked about it being a potential jonestown incident and then i was like oh i know about jonestown but i want to know more about jones you know jonestown or whatever we you and i have i don't think we've watched together but we've talked about the wild wild country Mm -hmm. and stuff and just sort of like just the interesting nature that is like sort of cults and how insular they can be and just like what's what's going on in them i think that's what makes me always interested in that sort of stuff it's like oh this is a you can only see it if you're in one and i'm like oh but i want to see it not be in one. Mm-hmm. yeah there's a there's a podcast i listened to called uh, i don't as much recently but i have listened to called generation y i think they're actually out of kc which doesn't really matter but it's kind of local um and they i'm pretty sure i'm looking for it now did an episode on ruby ridge at least. And they do a lot of like, they're very kind of, not dry, but they're very straightforward and kind of narrative. You know, they will do research and then they'll kind of present different theories and then they'll sort of present their own theory on how things happened. And some of it's a little more conspiracy oriented, but some of it's more sort of straight up and down historical. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm pretty sure, I'll, I'll confirm for sure, but I'm pretty sure they did an episode on at least uh, the... Um, Ruby Ridge thing. And it is, it's just, I, you know, I tend to think that I'm I'm not afraid of the government. I'm not like tinfoil hat person, but like, I do think that it's filled with people who can make mistakes. You know, Mm -hmm. I think this, this whole thing, what, again, probably not as cut and dry as the series wants you to believe where it's just the government in the wrong. Um, and you know, just escalating tensions and escalating bad decisions, probably more of the Davidians, you know, play a role in that. But I do think there's just a, a, a reality of escalating bad decisions, you know, making just making matters worse on both sides and, and elevating tensions. And obviously it became this awful disaster that nobody wanted. Uh, but, you know, it's so it's so hard for anyone to just say, OK, you know, I'm going to cut our losses and just leave, you know, <laughs> like, like let these guys be. Maybe we'll try and get Koresh sometime later when he's out in public, but like, let's just like stop and not, you know, put these people in more danger. That's so hard to do, but 
I don't know. It's just it's a fascinating story, and I think the show's probably, like we said, too friendly and too slanted. But I thought it was really well dramatized and really interesting. Oh yeah, and the acting, you know, was really good too. Yeah, we we whipped through it about as fast as you did. I think we watched the first like two episodes in one night, and then we watched the remaining four like the next night, and it was like, oh, we got to finish this. Yeah, um, it doesn't let you go for sure after a certain point. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, so for next for next week's real time, I've got a request. So real talk, but go real on. talk, yeah, real real time with real talk. I'm we got real quick. I'm skimming through these podcasts. Uh, this podcast to try and find the Ruby Ridge episode, and they have 300 plus episodes now. But some of these are so interestingly named, like the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. Oh, God. What's that? Are they the victims, the perpetrators? I don't know. <laughs> have, the, have the trefoils come for vengeance? I just, it's hard to know. Oh, anyway, God. sorry, you were saying. Honestly, last yesterday, we, we broke our quarantine and visited my. My girlfriend's sister and her fiance and we uh hung out with them and then last night we watched um parasite and so i was gonna say you you need to watch parasite oh and i'm gonna watch it again because she fell asleep for a good portion of it <laughs> and i was like you gotta watch this because i already thought that movie was supposed to be wacky and it got wackier <laughs> Ooh, i didn't know it could get wackier but i'm excited yeah i'll tell oh, you yeah. that I would love That's, that. Be it was very interesting. It was very, it was very, very interesting. I haven't watched a lot of movies, I guess, that were up for Oscars this last year, except for maybe Joker or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I definitely could see why this won Best Picture because I was like, oh, this is well shot. I'm very intrigued the entire time. Uh, we gotta, we gotta talk about it. So you know, I'm not in the K-pop, but I'm in the K-drama. There we go. I like that. And Ruby Ridge was episode 150. Eight of Generation okay. Y, so if anybody wants to find it. But yeah, so uh, that's, you know, that's kind of our overview of the whole thing. It's a great show if you're just yeah, into a drama and, and, you know, if you want to kind of turn off your brain to the, to the um, whodunit element or the, you know, the, the truthful element. Um, obviously very sad ending for anyone who has gotten this far and hasn't watched it. That's, you know you're on your own there but you should know that going in uh, the, the hilarity the one thing i'll say is what was it what was the his right hand man's name uh steve schneider yeah his steve schneider's wife being shot in the hand and then throughout the rest of the show having like a bullet in her hand yes. and being like i'm fine i'm fine and then having her type this guy's manuscripts up and it was just like i don't know it was i shouldn't have been laughing it wasn't necessarily comedic but so many times like it hurts so bad and then there she was using her hand uh, but like Winston through it i'm like this poor woman there's another there was another funny thing for me two funny things for me there was one thing was they had that guy in the compound who was like one of the main gunman guys who was the mm-hmm. giant dude oh, uh, with the beard that never got to talk. I think like, I don't know if he ever spoke, but if he did, he barely did, which I just thought was interesting because he was so prominently featured and so hard to miss on camera. And then what they kick him out for? Oh yeah. Like they what? eventually kicked him out because he was like too like passive or like too willing to leave. I forget the specifics of it, but Something like that. Or maybe he drank some alcohol. Oh, he drank, yeah, he like drank some alcohol or whatever. And I was like, okay. But 
that was yeah that was a whole weird thing but then i guess he got to save his life for that and then the other lot the underlying funny part of this which is not funny but it is kind of is uh they used parts of the waco compound as like a model for a rainbow six siege map and obviously oh, really? in the show um the waco compound is very true to life like you know very i'm, I'm sure they just built a replica out of cheap you know plywood and stuff and yeah. and uh so um it was just it was so strange to watch this footage either in the documentary or in the real show because it was very much the same and just see like oh yeah i've tried to i've tried to attack that window before too atf agents you need to <laughs> you need to watch for the spawn peeker in the window behind you because they'll get you every time <laughs> um yeah it was just that was a little bizarre but yeah great show overall sad thought-provoking mm-hmm. all those things not necessarily a you know a light-hearted romp but yeah uh, good show if, if people are looking for something to watch anything else you'd like to say about it uh no i mean i, I think i was just surprised by how interested i was in it you know yeah, I, I thought think... I, I thought i knew what i knew and i still came away feeling like i learned more and i was like happy that i watched it I think if I'd known it was a dramatization, I probably never would have clicked play. Or maybe I knew, you know, but like I, I wouldn't, I don't think I would have clicked play if I'd. I think you're right. I agree. Really known for sure that it was like all drama. And then like, I'm so glad I did because it was really well done. So mm-hmm. makes me actually want to watch Yellowstone, which I don't know where I can watch it, but I know that's another Paramount Network show that has like Michael Douglas or some big time actor in it. And so like I'm interested to watch that now but uh, i don't know what that's about and i don't know really anything more than the name but uh it is a kevin costner vehicle excuse me <laughs> also from paramount network so in any case uh yeah i enjoyed it and i enjoyed talking about it so good good for us oh, that's all we can do that concludes another episode of tg1c real talk and uh you know we're, we're here we're almost we're, i don't know quarantine official ends in in st louis county tomorrow st louis city tomorrow i think so Mm -hmm. you know maybe we'll have episodes in person before long but uh until then you know it's been it's been pretty real i think we've done a good job of being in distant from each other you know but we did a b plus yeah yeah you know always striving for perfection but never reaching it that's our motto so (laughs) exactly so uh anything else you want to say before we get out of here no, I mean, enjoy it. Be, be safe out there, but enjoy your, your reopening of things. God knows I'll be happy to just even possibly walk into a restaurant to pick up an order, you know, and be like, oh boy, I can even go inside now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be different. And like you said, you know, safety is most important, but I think, you know, most of us just emotionally and mentally feel like it's time to have a little more freedom. So, you know, mm-hmm. good luck to everybody out there. Don't get the Rona. And if you do, don't pass it to, you know, older folks and, and we'll, we'll get through, you know, mm-hmm. that's my deep thought. But anyway, uh, yeah, I guess that's, I guess that's it. I guess we can say goodbye now. Uh, we'll be back next week. Tell us if you have any topics, all that stuff. Subscribe, review, yada, yada, yada. And we'll talk real soon. Goodbye. See ya.